Hello and welcome back to the fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 20 called Diocletian's New Empire. In the last episode, we heard about Aurelian's restoration of the empire, defeating Palmyra and then reincorporating the breakaway Gallic Empire into the Roman Empire was finally achieved by AD 274, the year in which Aurelian held his great triumphal procession in Rome. But of course, shortly after that he was assassinated by his own soldiers in a dreadful misunderstanding that shocked the entire Roman world. It was clear that the army had gone too far this time. It was completely out of control. The way in which it made and slayed emperors had been a principal cause of the crisis of the third century. But it carried on for another 10 years in this way until a man was found who could solve the problem in 284. And that man was Diocletian, one of Rome's greatest emperors. So we'll spend the next few episodes talking about Diocletian and the truly extraordinary way that he reinvented the Roman Empire. And it was a reinvention just as revolutionary as that of Augustus about 300 years before. But just quickly, before we get on to Diocletian, let me update you on my trip to Rome last week when I went to see the Mausoleum of Augustus. Now, this has only recently been open to the public, and what it is is a great circular burial chamber in the Campus Martius in the northwest of ancient Rome. It's very similar to the better known Castel San Angelo, which is where Hadrian was buried and which the Pope's then much later turned into a castle. Augustus's mausoleum is actually bigger than Hadrian's, which you may not realise when you see it, and I think that's because so much has been built on top of Castel San Angelo in the Middle Ages that it does look taller. So what is there to see? Well, the site was excavated a long time ago, so there are no bodies or statues to see, but you can walk through the passageways and staircases, and you get a real sense of this huge Roman building, with massive walls made of those thin clay bricks that the Romans liked to use. Apparently, when it was finished, it was reasonably tall, since it had a roof and a statue of Augustus, which was visible from lots of places in the ancient city, since the Romans didn't have skyscrapers to block the view. And to give you a sense of its size, it was actually used as a concert hall about a 100 years ago. Anyway, although it's not as impressive as the Colosseum or the Pantheon, I would recommend having a look if you're in Rome. And now let's get back to the fall of the Roman Empire and the reign of Diocletian. It was early morning. The cool autumn sunlight illuminated an unlikely sight. Assembled on a hillside outside the city of Nicomedia near Izmir in modern-day Turkey was the most powerful army in the world. It was the Roman army of the east, fresh from a victorious war in Persia, having captured the Persian capital of Ctesiphon. Now the legionaries stood to attention, the autumn sunlight glinting on their chainmail. Rows of oval and round shields stretched into the distance, presenting 
including a mesmerising display of designs from simple circles to pictures of wolves and snakes. Behind the shield stood legionaries encased in chainmail or toughened leather cuirasses. Faces tanned by the sun looked out from underneath metal helmets. Various types of cavalrymen sat astride horses, Romans in chainmail with red-plumed helmets, Goths wielding long swords, and Moorish horsemen in long flowing robes and armed with javelins. The day was the 20th of November in the year 284. It was an important day, a day that the huge numbers of assembled soldiers felt was their vindication, for a new emperor was to be declared, an emperor of their choice and risen from their own ranks, a soldier like them who would rule over all the senators and bureaucrats they despised. In celebration, new coins bearing the emperor's head were being minted and would soon be distributed to the soldiers in the form of a generous donative. The captured booty from Persia would also be handed out. The day was not just their vindication, but also their reward. On a great wooden podium stood the senior officers of the tribunal. A man called Diocles walked up the steps and presented himself. He stood before the army. Immediately the soldiers began clashing their weapons and the deafening shout of Augustus rang out while the officers placed a purple cloak on the man's shoulders, its colour proclaiming him to be the new emperor. Yet the spectacle had only just begun. The next event in this performance would be far more gruesome. For a week before, the previous Roman emperor, Numerian, had been found dead in his tent. His son-in-law, Appa, had been arrested. A military tribunal declared him guilty of Numerian's murder. Now this man, Appa, was led onto the podium in chains. He was led to Diocles, who was given a sword. Diocles turned to the soldiers. He called out to them that this man must be punished. Numerian had been popular with the soldiers and they started to clamour for retribution. Appa was forced to the ground. Diocles raised his sword and brought it down on the man. Appa's lifeless body slumped forward as blood gushed onto the ground. The army roared its approval. Diocles raised his blooded sword to the heavens in acknowledgement. Thus began the reign of Diocletian, the most important reformer of the Roman state since Augustus, 300 years before. On becoming emperor, he changed his name from Diocles to the more dignified Diocletianus, or Diocletian, as he is better known to us. Like most of the previous soldier emperors, he came from humble origins. Born into a poor family in Dalmatia in Roman Illyria, he joined the army and rose through the ranks as an able and brave cavalry commander in the elite Dalmatian cavalry regiment. He was ambitious and ruthless. In the early 280s, he became a favourite of both the army and the Emperor Carus, who also came from Illyria. Appointed to lead Carus's elite cavalry, Diocletian was a popular army commander. He was also the master of opportunism, for when Carus died in mysterious circumstances, Diocletian saw his opportunity and seized power. It's quite possible he conspired to 
to murder Carus, we shall never know. Indeed, he may also have murdered Carus's son and heir apparent, Numerian, who also died in suspicious circumstances, although Appa was the man convicted. Diocletian went on to defeat Carus's other son, Carinus, in a battle in modern-day Serbia. Carinus was subsequently killed by his own troops, and Diocletian became the undisputed emperor of the whole Roman Empire. To all intents and purposes, it looked as if yet another soldier emperor had succeeded to the throne, who would, no doubt, be murdered by his own troops when they grew weary of him. But Diocletian was different. Unlike his predecessors Claudius, Aurelian and Probus, he was a political innovator. This is reflected in a story that one day he reproved his co-emperor Maximian for admiring Aurelian too much. Aurelian had been their common mentor and both men were in awe of him, but Diocletian told Maximian that while Aurelian had been a great general, he had been a poor emperor. What Diocletian meant by this was that Aurelian failed to stop invaders from continuing to strike deep into the heartland of the empire. For despite Aurelian's victories, after his death, there had been an endless series of barbarian invasions across the Rhine and Danube from 275 to 284, which the emperor Probus had spent most of his reign fighting. Diocletian wanted to put an end to this. He wanted to make the empire safe. So he began a series of reforms that would result in the effective reinvention of the Roman Empire. The first of these was with the empire's defences. In recent decades, archaeological evidence has unearthed more of the huge scale of Diocletian's defensive programme. In the east, a long line of forts was built to protect the frontier from Egypt to Armenia. Extensive new fortifications were built along the Rhine, centred on the Gallic capital of Trier, which still boasts impressive remains. In Britain, a series of massive fortifications were constructed, the so-called Saxon shore forts to protect the English Channel from Saxon pirates. And some of these have survived to this day because their huge size meant that they became medieval castles. The main feature of Diocletian's new defensive system was size. It represented a significant upgrade on the empire's previous defensive network. Frontier defences during the Pax Romana were often little more than lookout towers. For example, Hadrian's Wall in northern England was barely 20 feet high. In Africa, its main defensive wall was only 7 feet high. In contrast, Diocletian's new forts were much more substantial. They were genuine strong points, like medieval castles. As the chronicler Zosimus records, quote, by the foresight of Diocletian, the frontiers were everywhere studded with forts and towers, end quote. Their purpose was to hold out for months after the enemy had invaded. That way they could link up with counter-attacking Roman armies. 
An example of this was told by the Roman chronicler Eusebius, who recounts that when Constantius, who was one of Diocletian's generals and the father of the future Emperor Constantine, had been defeated by invading German Alemanni, he had fled to the fortified town of Longres in Gaul, where he was hauled to safety over the tall walls by a rope. There he waited for reinforcements to arrive, whereupon the Longre garrison sallied out, cut off the Germans' retreat, and completely wiped out the invaders. While Diocletian's focus was on fortification, he also needed soldiers and lots of them. Much scholarly ink has been spilled over the possible size of Diocletian's army with views from modern historians ranging widely from 200,000 to a million. Unfortunately, the Romans have left us virtually no meaningful information on the size of the army in the 3rd century. Because of this, we are reliant on one main source, the Noticia Dignitatum, written in the early 5th century, which contains details about the regiments within the Roman army in about AD 400, so about 100 years after the time that we're talking about. The point the Noticia is clearest about is that by the late 4th century there had been a large increase in the number of Roman legions to about 53 from around 30 200 years previously in say AD 200. Evidence suggests that it was Diocletian who increased the number of legions. Because of this, historians used to believe he'd almost doubled the size of the Roman army. However, this now looks unlikely since many of the legions were probably smaller than they had been in the past. The army of the Principate, as the period of the Pax Romana is called, is fairly reliably estimated at around 300,000. That is, 30 legions of around 5,000 men, plus a similar number of auxiliaries. And the best we can say about Diocletian's army is that it was probably at least as large and might have been larger. Whatever the case, one thing was certain. Given the reduction in the empire's economy and population in the 3rd century, the army was a much bigger burden. Cavalry remained the senior service in Diocletian's army. Diocletian had himself been a cavalry commander, just like the previous emperors Claudius and Aurelian. In addition, he probably sponsored the development of more heavily armoured cavalry called cataphracts, copied from the Persians, although these were likely to have been small in number. As evidence of this, Roman cataphracts are specifically mentioned by the chronicler Eusebius in the civil war between Constantine and Maxentius in AD 312. Another important part of Diocletian's military reorganisation was the military supply chain. A large army needed a large supply, not just of provisions, but of military hardware. The Noticia Dignitatum provides some detail about this. It seems Diocletian established at least 12 arsenals around the empire, managed by the army and worked by skilled craftsmen conscripted for military service. Where possible, they were located near to iron ore deposits and there was some specialisation in production. For example, the works at Nicomedia produced shields and swords 
At Caesarea, it was armour, and in Cilicia, it was spears and lances. Many of them produced textiles for uniforms. Diocletian's successors added to these arsenals so that there was such an abundance of Roman military equipment available by the 4th century that many of the Germanic tribes were even using Roman weapons and armour, either gifted, purchased, or very often stolen. Finally, Diocletian continued the use of mobile field armies. These were called in Latin comitatenses versus the frontier legions called limitanii, held as a reserve force behind the front lines. These had been formed during the 3rd century to respond quickly to enemy attacks when these overwhelmed the frontier defences. For example, the Emperor Gallienus formed a central field army in the 260s to defend Italy from the Alemanni. With his extensive building of forts and castles, Diocletian probably redirected some of the field troops back to the front line. However, the future emperor Constantine built them up again, partly to fight the civil wars that were a key feature of his reign. Diocletian was acutely aware that maintaining this vast defensive network required money. He was also acutely aware that the state was bankrupt. This led to what was probably his most enduring achievement, the complete overhaul of the Roman tax system. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And next week, we'll continue with the story of Diocletian. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. (laughs) 